State of the Industry podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Adam Yangsma. I am really excited for this episode because I get to bring on a mentor and a friend of mine, Chuck Wolf. Chuck Wolf and I first met at a conference session, and I've honestly have heard him speak probably five or six times in multiple countries. And every single time I hear him speak, I learn something new. Now, I was lucky enough to travel down to Orlando, Florida, where he is the director of Human Motion Associates. And uh, basically what he does is he consults with clients ranging from rehabilitation setting all the way to pro athletes. He runs seminars, presents at conferences. He has written a book. And he's seen as honestly one of the top educators when it comes to things like applied biomechanics and really seeing the body in a different way with regards to motion. So if you ever have a chance to hear him speak, or if you ever have a chance to read any of his articles, watch some of his educational videos, or read the book that he has written, which we talk about at length in this podcast, uh, honestly, pick it up, listen to him, and really absorb as much of this man's brain as you possibly can. Without any more incessant rambling on my part, let's dive right in. All right, well, welcome, Chuck, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you doing? Adam, how are you, sir? Good to see you again. I'm doing very well. I'm, I'm really happy to be down here in Florida in the sun. It's cold at home. Well, for us to be able to do this, it would only be for you to come down here because this time <laughs> of year, I am not coming up to Canada. Yeah, well, we, we could have waited until next August, but I didn't really want to do that way either. Way too cold for this old guy. It's way too cold. Um, so... I just wanted to ask, just to start off, can you just give our audience just a little bit of an idea about how you got into being one of the leaders with regards to biomechanics and movement analysis um, and kind of how you got to where you are right now? Well, first of all, thank you for that compliment. I, I never aspired to be and still don't know if I am a leader in biomechanics. I'm told that I'm recognized for that and uh, that's my passion. Um, I've been a practicing exercise physiologist for 39 years and I have a fellowship in biomechanics from the Gray Institute. Uh, before that fellowship I always studied movement as it was um, through my education and just through working in the trenches. Mm -hmm. My career started in cardiac rehab um, that helped open opportunities and doors, but at the same time, I, I saw early on, way back in the day of the cave woman, cave man gym, that cardiovascular rehab, cardiovascular physiology is, yeah, you need, it's important, but that's not what's making the fitness industry buzz the way it, it was. It, it was looking at injuries and just looking at performance and movement, yeah. and I started studying back then. Uh, the thing is, is that I remember studying very early on, uh, even when I was in college, and the first three or four years of, of my career was, I really didn't need to know what was going on with the foot because everything, we did calf raises in those days and, when, and hamstring, quads, yeah. glutes, all the way up the chain, and it was such a mistake on my part. 
to not know what's going on at the foot. I just thought, okay, foot's the foot. It's the ankle, dorsiflexus, plantar flexes, and I can work from there. But yeah. that was not the case whatsoever. Yeah. Once I started learning about the foot, once I started looking at the interactions and the chain reactions that occur from foot movement and foot function and how it affected the hips and the back and the thoracic spine and the shoulder, even the cervical spine, it just opened up a whole new world. Yeah. So that became my passion and, and I've been fortunate enough to be in certain places and attend certain conferences that uh, when I would listen to some people speak, in those days the presenters that were, that were well known and I heard them speak and I thought, well what they're saying is correct to a degree. Mm -hmm. I've got other things to say about this, and I, I remember starting with an organization uh, at IDEA yeah. back in 1997, um, and I was blessed to have some good responses and blessed to be able to just expand from there. So yeah. when, it be, when you say a leader, again, thank you for that compliment, but there's I learned from many of the great ones in our industry and rehab as well. and yeah. and. Uh, it's just a passion that you continue to learn and never stop. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, <clears throat> probably about four or five years ago was my first time ever listening to you speak up at a conference in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And um, you did that that circle walk with Gate. And then, okay, <laughs> imagine that you don't have any dorsiflexion now in your left foot. And, you know, changing the way that people walk to kind of start understanding how that foot, how that ankle affects everything else up the chain. Well, and, and interestingly enough, I still do that, but I add not just the, the ankle. Now you've got a, a great toe or, or your metatarsal heads that have a problem. Yeah. And it's your ankle that ha has a problem. Okay, that's all better. Now you got a hip flexor that's a problem. And that's better. Now it's your thoracic spine or your shoulder that's a problem. And we just look at how that affects by immobilizing those regions so to speak when I say immobilizing it's just we're doing this on the fly and we're just yeah. saying if you have a grade two AC separation of your shoulder your arms in a sling walk around with your arm holding on to your to your shirt or your sweatshirt or whatever and look at how that affects your rotation look how it affects your gait and how does it affect you in the frontal plane what does it do to your hip what's going on at the foot and ankle and what people are seeing is that if it's a great toe if it's an ankle if it's a hip if it's a thoracic spine or a shoulder girdle issue, everything seems to start becoming the same type of injury. Different region may may hurt and be affected, yeah. but the gross movements become very similar. Mm -hmm. So you could see how a limitation may affect compensations through the rest of the body. And I've, I've been told by others, they've been very kind enough to say things to me about how it's been affected, but it's fun and we get some laughter out of it, but we also get a lot of aha moments. Yeah. That, hmm, you know what? I've had this shoulder problem for a while, and isn't it interesting that my back is starting to bother me or my hip is bothering me? And then you filter through it. We're a chain reaction. We're a series of reactions that should occur at a certain time in a certain plane, and, and it's, that, it's that synergistic approach that makes us either efficient or inefficient in movement, and that's when it becomes fun. Yeah. When, when do you think um, in the fitness industry as a whole, now I know you're more in the, the sports performance and rehabilitation side, but you've gone to a whole lot of conferences, IDEA, CampFit Pro, uh, to name a couple. 
when did we start to see, so I know you were probably a little bit earlier than others, but when did we start to see in the fitness industry a, a, a transition towards looking at the full body as a, a very connected cross-body kinetic chain? Oh my, I would say that goes back in the, um, I started recognizing that and, and seeing that uh, back in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. I started exploring and studying that in the mid 90s to the late 90s. And um, it's people like uh, uh, Michelle Dalcourt and, um, and Lenny Parasino and Greg Roscoff and Gray Cook, uh, Gary Gray that started, and, and I was speaking on this, these topics as well, but I would say in the late 90s to the early 2000s is when we started to hear a lot about that. Okay. <clears throat> um, Ian O'Dwyer is another in Australia, uh, Rodney Korn with, uh, uh, he's with SOMA now and, and he was with NASM they did a great job of bringing information, at least awareness about whatever functional training means. It's, function is a word that I despise in the fitness industry because it's misused, abused, and totally misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, but we'll use that as a generic catch-all term right now. Mm -hmm. But they are the ones that, that started that awareness. The problem is, is that back then there was no criteria of what human movement or function was. I prefer to use the term human movement rather than function. Yeah. Because again, function is overused and misused and abused and even vendors were saying their equipment is functional and it was the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah. So I prefer using the term human movement, but when the industry first started to embrace functional training, it was interesting in a few respects is that the traditional strength and conditioning coaches and rehab, uh, people in, in rehab and physical therapy were very resistant to it. Yeah. They didn't recognize it. They were the functionalists on one side and it's the strength and conditioning and the traditionalists on the other. Well, that's not to say that one is better than another. I believe that there's a blend that needs to be created between the two. But the problem was that the fitness industry took off with function, the term functional training, and made it into a circus. Yeah. It was ridiculous of the things that were being done. And I, and I just would you know, watch when I would go to go to uh, listen at educational seminars and see some of the circus acts that were taking place on stability balls or BOSUs or whatever else they had back early days just to create instability. Yeah. And we were losing it completely. Yeah. It started to refine itself. I'd like to think that you know, some of us had some impact on, on at least bringing better understanding, better awareness of what movement truly is, and then taking it from there. Yeah. The problem is, is some embraced it. Again, the strength and conditioning coaches, some started to embrace it and, and blend function into it, uh, whatever function is, functional training. Some were very resistant. Uh, the physios still were very resistant. To me, those are the ones that really fell to the wayside. Because you look at a lot of the strength and conditioning coaches today, they still do good traditional strength and conditioning, yeah. but they've started to understand what human movement is and blend in what triplane integrated movement is about. Yeah. And what's I find the best result is you need to have the strength, you need to have the triplane mobility, 
and you get the better result of let it be if it's somebody in rehab, somebody that's in fitness, somebody that's in in sports performance to the highest level, you see a much better conditioned, well-rounded uh, individual who just uh, has a lower risk of injury. Yeah. I, I remember <clears throat> this is way back, um, probably four or five years ago, I started writing uh, an article. So it was on my old website of mine. So I started writing this article um, and it was called, um, you know, what is functional training? And it had a picture that I found on, on, on Instagram and it was this guy standing on two kettlebells with one kettlebell in his hand overhead doing a squat <laughs> with one of those um, those face masks, the breath, breath restriction mm -hmm. devices. And um, because I found that and it was a post about quote unquote functional training. And I remember reading an article that you wrote about functional training and, and I've heard some other podcasts that you've done talking about functional training and that function is very individual. Right, because what function means is it's what do you d need to do or what do you do on a daily basis, right? And that's going to be a little bit different for everybody. It is right? very subjective. Yeah, very subjective because for whatever reason that somebody develops a limitation in a compensation, let it be if it's in the foot and ankle or the hip or the thoracic spine, you're going to see limitations in movement. But at the same time, you may see some similarity to somebody else who may be limited in movement. That doesn't mean we. Pre prescribe the same type of exercise program for those people. Yeah. You may have some of the same movement patterns, but at the same time, we have to understand what is the problem? What is the limitation that one individual has versus the other? They, again, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people with back pain and it's been a foot problem or it's been a shoulder problem that's created the back issue. Yeah. That's where it becomes individualistic. That, to me, is when our industry becomes, first of all, the work becomes fun. It's not play. Yeah. It's, it's not work. It's, it's play and it's fun because if you have the passion, if you have the understanding, and at least the, the certain principles, the principles are being the truths. The good Lord made, made us to, to move a certain way. And that's what doesn't change from the day that man and woman walked upright to the highest performing athlete, to grandma and grandpa, you limit a certain region, what I call the big movement rocks, which is the foot and ankle, the hips and the thoracic spine. You get a limitation there, I guarantee you there's going to be a compensation elsewhere. Yeah. And those compensations usually come out as the back and the knee or the shoulder first, then cervical spine. Those are the, kind, of, kind of the order of the hierarchy of injuries that we typically see. Yeah. And unless if there's blunt trauma, typically the site of the injury is not the problem. We have to step back and say, what's limited in motion? It could be a joint level or two levels away. Uh, now that becomes impacted, then we start seeing not only the mechanical issues, then we start to see some other neurological pathways that become limited and now it gets really deep and we start going down this rabbit hole that sometimes we can't get out of. Uh, but when we do and we can understand what is limited, and you free up that limitation and you see improved movement, that's when the people start feeling better and that's what this is all about. But to see, as, as you just described, that, that photo on Instagram, or I've seen presenters that I remember doing squats on a stability ball, yeah. they're saying this is functional training and I remember a couple of the presenters falling on their tails, one blowing out a knee, that that's not how we do things. Yeah. That is not, what's the objective? Yeah. The problem is when 
functional training came out, again, it became a circus and we lost the objective. We just wanted to go in and see how much we could challenge our clients and how much we can make them hurt through their glutes being sore, their abs being sore a day or two later. That's not the way to go. Yeah. And hopefully it's, it's not that way. For the most part, I think the industry has evolved a bit. Yeah. But it's interesting, as long as I've been in the, in, in the business, <clears throat> we went through that circus phase, we came out of it, and I'm starting to see a little bit, a little bit of that starting to come back. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how uh, the industries kind of follows trends. So trends catch on really quickly, but actual change, so things that stick around take so much longer to get ingrained in what trainers do. And a lot of it, I think, falls on the people who are teaching the personal trainers and, you know, who are presenting at, at conferences and, and making sure that we present it as, you know, full body connections, you know, cross body contralateral movements and getting them to understand how. And, and I first heard this uh, when I was listening to some uh, Mike Boyle and um, Gray Cook stuff when they were talking, when they first introduced or started talking about the, the joint by joint approach. And it was my first time actually like with an aha, like I never thought of it that way in like the simplistic terms. And I know it's not perfect, but in the simplistic, simplistic terms, like you talked about the ankle, the hip and the thoracic spine as being the primary movement rocks because thoracic spine, you know, you look at everything that goes, you know, proximal to distal from there and you got, you know, glenohumeral joints, a common area of injury and the scapulothoracic joints, a common area of dysfunction and instability, mm -hmm. right? And so you start noticing that and understanding, oh, okay, so I need to look closer to the center to kind of see or affect movement in a different way. Right? Well, you, you're going back to the center, and let's, what's commonly referred to as the center in our industry? The core. The core, yeah. okay? Whatever the core is, yeah. uh, you've got to be strong through there. And I remember going back in the 80s hearing Vern Gambetta and Al Vermeil talking about you've got to have the core strength first before you start working your way outwards to more dynamic and more distal movements or more lateral movements or tissues away from the core. Yeah. That's still true today. Yeah. If I use the correlation, what's easier to walk across, a steel cable bridge or a swinging bridge? And if we're not stable, if we're not strong in the core, again, whatever the core is, yeah. if you're not strong through there to be able to transmit forces, to be able to mitigate forces that go through the system, we're not going to be, we're not going to be stable. We're not going to be strong. We're not going to perform efficiently. And your risk of injury goes up dramatically. Yeah. So that concept goes back, you know, back into the, into the, 80s yeah. maybe before and I don't mean to say that those guys are old but I know I am and I know those guys are my age or older but they're pioneers and they were are still our great practitioners yeah. and if we even go before then you know a person that is really interesting to talk to is a uh, Dr. Ed Thompson out of uh, Ed Thomas out of um, Iowa and he's a researcher and he's a professor at University of Iowa, I believe. I don't think it's Iowa State. I think it's University of Iowa. Okay. So forgive me if I'm mistaken. Yeah. But he studies and studied in the, the history of fitness. Now, he's brilliant when it comes to physiology yeah. and, and understanding what goes on there. But he looks back at the early forms of 
fitness and training. And it all comes back to calisthenics and some of the tools that he, that he shows in his literature and the research that he is this founder is Indian clubs yeah. and kettlebells and ropes, uh, dumbbells, medicine balls, but not the medicine balls that bounce so much, yeah. but the big leather uh, medicine balls that just don't bounce well, but they absorb a lot of force. Those go back into the 20s. Yeah. And what are we using today for what's, quote, functional training? Yeah. All those tools. Yeah. So I find that interesting. And he's somebody that I really suggest you may want to talk to yeah. one day. Well, he's a brilliant he'll, guy. He'll and be added, he'll uh, be added to the list. just has, has a tremendous amount of research. And he does a lot. Uh, uh, he often comes to the Perform Better conferences. Okay. And sometimes he speaks at a Perform Better conference. But he's a gentleman that just has a list of of research or he has many articles or books with him that he'll show you where all this information comes from. Yeah. Gymnastics, it's all body weight. Yeah. So we go back to that. A good trainer, if we go back to the principles that Thomas discovered way back when, if we go back to that, it comes down to body weight. Yeah. Body weight is dependent upon the control of mass, momentum, and gravity and ground reaction forces. That hasn't gone away. Yep. It's a principle of movement. We can work out our clients with nothing. To me, I have said many times in, in, in uh, sessions that I've presented, which is a big open room, that this is the gym of the future. Yep. If we didn't have anything else in the gym, I don't care if we didn't have a band, a dumbbell, a stability bar, we had nothing, yep. you can work somebody out. Yep. You just have to understand what is the, the goal of the program. What is the objective of you're trying to get somebody into a certain position, into certain body angles that you know will activate, whatever that word means, but let's talk about activate a certain part of the, of the body, let it be if it's the glute, the lateral glute, the abdominals, you name it. You should be able to figure out what angles and what positions you put your client in to train them and to turn that on. Yeah. The problem is our industry doesn't understand that. Yeah. And it comes down to understanding biomechanics, understanding the chain reaction that occurs of certain regions of the body and how it affects others. And the problem, too, is that, to me, most trainers, the vast majority, depend on the tool to train the individual and to impact the individual rather than the individual impacting the tool. Let's yeah. not be dictated by a machine or a dumbbell that says, I'm supposed to do a curl this way There's a, or a shoulder press this way. There are, there are vast ways to do this. There are a myriad of ways to work with dumbbells or without dumbbells to train a particular region. Mm -hmm. If we can understand that, that adds creativity to the trainer. The client's workout should never be the same. The burnout rate will go down for the client and for the trainer, yep. and that trainer's business will soar because they're going to get referrals, and that client's going to say, I've never worked out like this or nothing is ever the same and they're going to tell their friends business will grow. Yeah. I can't remember exactly who I heard it from. Um, you know, it could have been Eric Cressy or Gray Cook or one of any hundreds of other presenters I've heard talk, but uh, you mentioned something about challenging positions, not load, right? Like that's kind of the concept behind it is I don't necessarily have to 
load them with barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, or anything. I can just challenge the position that they're in and find that, that spot that, as you said, is going to activate, you know, glute med if I need that or glute max or hamstring or whatever I'm, I'm looking at emphasizing, whatever area I'm looking at emphasizing for that specific client to get the result that I'm looking for. And I just challenge the positions of it, yep. right? As opposed to having to load them up and lift a lot of weight. Because I find a lot of trainers, as you said, are, are limited with the, the action of the tool that they have, right? So they go to a, and this is nothing against any of these companies, but if they go to a TRX course, right? And what do they bring back to their clients? all TRX, right? And they, they do that until they're like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm kind of sick of doing, like they, as the trainer, are sick of doing TRX things. So it's like, well, let's go to a kettlebell fundamentals course. They go to that, what do they bring back? Kettlebells, and it's kettlebells for a while, and it's like, okay, let's go to a BOSU certification, and they bring, like, and it's constant, and I've seen that, because like I've, I've been a manager of a facility, I was manager of a facility for about five years, sports, like a, a high-level sports training facility in Toronto, and, that's what you saw, right? Every single time they either, something new came around, they went to that course, they brought it all to their clients as opposed to thinking, how can I utilize this tool to add to what my client is getting out of everything else that I'm doing, right? They change everything to add in that tool as opposed to, you know, figuring out kind of but small Adam, pieces. that's very true. You know, yeah. I, I, they learn it and now everything is a nail. Yeah. I, I learned how to use this hammer and everything I see is a nail. Problem is we don't necessarily use it properly. Yeah. The issue with, in a weekend seminar, uh, you can get, you can load up the toolbox, but do we understand the rationale of why? Yeah. Why are we using it? How are we using it? Yeah. And when are we gonna use it? The industry does a great job of what, when, and how. What I'm gonna use today, how I'm gonna use it, maybe what exercise I'm gonna do, when we're gonna do it in the routine, how we're gonna do it in the routine, but they don't understand, they've gotten better, but they still don't have a great understanding of why. And I see so many trainers, so many strength and conditioning coaches that are good, yeah. but they, they just use tools and the issue is they use it in one plane of motion. Yeah. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it in that plane of motion, but all muscles, all joints, work in three planes of motion. Yep. There's going to be a predominance of, of a plane of motion that a joint may work within. But there's still, there's still motion in the other two planes of motion. The problem is trainers don't understand that. Yep. Physios don't understand it. Strength and conditioning coaches don't. So when they say a lot of these trainers that are doing functional training, again, whatever that might be, I often see that it's too sagittal plane dominant or yeah. one plane dominant. And we have to appreciate how one plane impacts the other. For example, when I see a client that is limited in hip rotation, historically, and, and when I first started in the industry or when I first started studying movement, I saw somebody tight in internal rotation of the hip as an example. What's my objective back then? And what's a trainer's objective today? If I told a trainer, 
This client is tight in right hip internal rotation. Crank internal rotation. Crank internal rotation. The issue is, is that they're going to be limited in the frontal plane as well. They're going to be limited in an adduction because to load the hip, you have to go through internal rotation in the transverse plane, adduction in the frontal plane, flexion in the sagittal plane. Yeah. However, they become more limited in the frontal plane. Is what I've and, and I've just I've I've learned this just through trial and error. Yeah. That if I don't have frontal plane motion, or if I have a client who doesn't have frontal plane motion. Uh, let me let me rephrase that. If they don't have internal hip rotation, I'm checking frontal plane motion. They don't have that as well. Yeah. My experience has found I've been much more successful. They've been much more comfortable gain the hip adduction first because when they get frontal plane motion, that will enhance transverse plane motion. So yeah. they will. It will be easier to get the rotation of the hip. Yeah. There's no books out there. Well, there's one book out there now that talks about it, but. But there's no books, no literature that really addresses that. Yeah. And that's just some of the things that in the trenches over 39, almost 40 years now, that I've, that I've kind of learned and found to be successful because of some of the trials and limitations or maybe failures that I've had with trying to get somebody to move better in the transverse plane, as an example. But the issue is, is that trainers and, and, and coaches and physios, most of them, don't think in three planes of motion. Yeah. And when we look at these, going back to these seminars, okay, they've added some tools in the toolbox, but give us a reason of why we're using it and how we use it and what are some of the contraindications. Yeah. Those are the issues I've got with some of these things. Yeah, and I think for, for new trainers, uh, specifically, it's like, it's, it's an issue with being able to conceptualize that 3D motion. Because even when you're talking about that, and I know I've been to a few of your seminars where you've got some I think it was specifically the knee. You had the 3D knee, like all the muscles and all the, the actions and, and all what's going on at every in every plane with you know knee flexion, like what's actually going on in all those different planes. Uh, I think it was during a squat perhaps. And and it's like I'm looking around the room at everybody and they're all like, but that does flexion and how is it like where is it rotating? And I don't it's, it's hard for trainers to conceptualize, specifically when you don't have a, a firm basis in anatomy <coughs> or biomechanics, right? When you don't have a firm grasp of those those concepts, it's really hard to see that. Now, you've been in the industry for you know 39 years, and as you said, you've worked with a lot of clients, and you've, over time, you know, come to these realizations, these understandings, and you've been able to, you were part of the writing of the book. Correct, the one that has the three D motion in it. That's my yes. book. Yes. What, what, what's the book? If you just insights to functional training principles, concepts, and applications. There you go. So go get that book. <laughs> but that's that's a like because you actually have an excerpt from it that that shows it all, and yes. it gives a better. Uh, 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 it's easier than for a trainer to then start seeing it and understanding it. But I th I find that's really hard for a new trainer to understand. It's. And I remember being that trainer where I, I understood flexion and extension yeah. because every book back then told me the knee flexes and extends. But the books back then and the Kinesio books didn't talk about internal rotation. Yeah. Didn't talk about transverse plane motion of the knee. Definitely didn't talk about knee frontal plane motion, especially knee abduction because 
what is the most confusing when we talked about the knee, 100% of the time, well, 95% of the time, is when we talk about frontal plane motion of the knee, and the trainers see when the knee goes into a valgus, or the knees, let's just say, generally saying, squint together, get closer together, we've been told that, well, those knees are getting closer together, so that must be, and the knee is driving towards the midline, that that's knee adduction, adduction, and it's not. Yeah. Movement away from the spine is defined as the distal bone in relation to the proximal bone. So you've got the femur and the tibia, the two major bones of the knee. We have to look at what's going on at the tibia in relation to the femur. Yeah. And as you go into a squat, as an example, the ankle is going to dorsiflex. The calcaneus of the foot is going to evert. So we have eversion and dorsiflexion. The combination of those two actions cause the tibia to internally rotate. Yeah. So now, by definition, if the tibia internally rotates further and faster than the femur, distal bone in relation to the proximal bone, you've got internal rotation of the knee. Yeah. And we step back and say, wait a minute, the knee's not supposed to rotate. And that's wrong. The knee yeah. is supposed to rotate to some degree, usually around 6 to 10 degrees, depending on what book you read. Yeah. But you are going to see that. So as the knee internally rotates, it's going to dive in towards the midline. Yeah. But when we look at that, and as the knee, let's say the knee is flexed and is in a valgus position or the knee is diving towards the midline. Look at the distal end of the tibia in relation to the distal end of the femur, and you see that the distal bone in relation to the proximal bone, so the tibia to the femur, the tibia is lateral to the femur. Yeah. By definition, the knee is abducted, not adducted. So yeah. the knee is abducted. People have to step back and say, wait a minute, that's, I, I don't get that. And I was one of those trainers for a long time, and I read it over and over and over again. I stood in front of a mirror, and I, I watched, and then I finally realized, when I look at bone segments, and I see that the knee internally, ro uh, the tibia internally rotates, and the tibia is actually, by definition, because we look at relative motion of, of a segment versus another segment. Yeah. So the tibia internally rotated more than the femur, or faster than the femur. So there's internal rotation. And then as the foot everts, the tibia is going to be controlled by what goes on at the subtalar joint yep. and the foot. So I'm going to see what's going on there. The femur is going to be controlled by what's going on at the hip. So now the knee is the dumbest joint in the body and saying, okay, what do I do here? I'm being dictated by above and below. But I'm the one that gets to be the victim of I'm in the bad position or I get injured. The knee is just reacting. Yeah. So when I read... And, and hear presenters say, I heard a very well-known presenter many years ago say that pronation is bad. Mm -hmm. Totally incorrect. Overpronation is bad. Prolonged pronation is bad. But the, the foot needs to go through pronation because as it goes through pronation, the tibia is going to internally rotate, the femur will internally rotate. We'll, we'll load up the glute. Yeah. We'll get the glute to lengthen and eccentrically load. Because as the foot goes through eversion, the ankle then goes through certain motions, the tibia, the femur go through certain motions, and the tissues get eccentrically loaded first. Yeah. Problem is the industry doesn't talk about that. There's yeah. one book that does. Yeah. And we, <laughs> and, and we now know it. And we know and we now know that. But there's there's another there's a couple of other references out there these days that, that talk about it. 
but that's how the body's made. Yeah. Now, when we see somebody that is overpronated or when they squat, the knee goes into a valgus moment or as trainers often try to say, especially back in the 80s and 90s, I remember reading these articles. You can see pictures of the trainer holding the knees in or out a little bit so the knee tracks over the second and third toe or they may be doing squats against a mini band uh, where the band's wrapped around the, the femurs and they're ad abducting the hip. Yeah. But let's figure out why is the knee going that way? Yeah. Why is the knee wanting to drive, drive medially? Why is the knee going into a valgus position? Well, I heard for many years that there was an organization that's well-known and brought a lot of awareness to functional training, but they said, well, it's a weak glute medius. Yeah. I step back and say, okay, what caused the glute medius to be weak? And that's when the term deactivated became known in the industry. Yeah. What caused it to become deactivated? We've got to figure that out. Yeah. If we can figure that out, then we can understand why it may be deactivated. Hopefully yeah. it's not a neurological problem. That's going to be a much more complex issue. But from a biomechanical standpoint, what should happen that's not happening that's causing the glute to get weak? Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back because I know we've talked a lot about uh, gait and analysis. So let's talk about the glute a little bit and the ankle and kind of the connection between them. And I know you're smiling right now because you're like, oh, rabbit hole, here we go. But when we're talking <coughs> about gait, can you kind of walk through uh, just what you look for when you do a gait analysis on somebody, when you're first assessing them, what are the big, you know, things that you're looking at during that? First, let's set up the premise that this is under normal, healthy conditions and yep. what we typically should see with somebody who doesn't have any compensations, somebody who um, is not injured. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the big movement rocks is what I look at. I want to see what's going on at the foot and ankle, the hips, and the thoracic spine. That's what I look at and then fill in what goes on in between with the knee, the low back, shoulder, and cervical spine. Under normal healthy conditions as an individual, let's, let's assume they're striding forward with their right leg. They typically would land on the lateral calcaneus. As that hits the ground, the lever that's formed between the, the calcaneus and the ground now causes, and because of the angulation of the tissues and the joints and so on, which is going way deep in the rabbit hole that we don't want to necessarily, yeah. necessarily do. But let's just say that when the foot hits the ground, ground reaction force is going to cause the foot to evert or go into pronation. Yeah. Now the foot is firmly on the ground. Now if we think of this from looking under the foot, so let's assume that we're, we're underneath a glass floor and you see the foot come crashing down onto the floor. As you look further above, you're going to see that the tibia is now going to come over the, over the foot. Yeah. Well, that's creating ankle dorsiflexion. As the calcaneus everts, think of the calcaneus as the tire of a bicycle. You have a rider on the bike and that rider is a bone called the talus. So the talus sits on top of the calcaneus, and the, and the talus has a long helmet, yep. 
a bike helmet called the tibia. So now you see that that right foot hits the ground, that calcaneus, that bike tire hits the ground, and now all of a sudden that bottom of the bike tire starts going out to the right. Think of that as just the bottom of the foot going into pronation. Mm -hmm. So the relative motion of that foot is going out to the right. Well, as that tire is going to the right, if you're, a, if you're on a bike, you're kind of leaning towards your left. Yeah. The bike's starting to fall towards your left. So you as the, as the rider, being the tailless, are you going to look straight ahead, or are you going to look a little bit to your left to see where you may be falling? You're going to most likely look and see where you're falling. So the talus now dives medially. Yep. That's where we get pronation. Now you have this long helmet called the tibia. You're wearing that helmet. As you look to your left, where's, it, where's your helmet going to go? To the left. It's going to turn to the left. So all of a sudden now you've got internal rotation of the tibia because the, because the, because the calcaneus is everting. The talus is diving medially yeah. and those regions of the foot went further and faster than the midfoot and the forefoot. Mm -hmm. So to allow the, when we look at the, the rear foot that's, and we'll say the rear foot's a calcaneus and the talus, that is going into adduction further and faster than the midfoot and the forefoot. So now we look at the relative position of the midfoot and forefoot to the rear foot, and we see that the midfoot and forefoot is abducted yeah. in relation to the rear foot. So there's four things that just happened here. You had calcaneal eversion, ankle dorsiflexion, tibial internal rotation, and forefoot abduction. Now you've got that foot that's firmly on the ground. Those tissues of the foot, you've got uh, 26 muscles, uh, check that, 24 muscles, 26 bones, and 33 joints in the foot. So there's a lot of stuff happening there. Yeah. But it's lengthened to decelerate that motion. When tissues lengthen, we store about three to nine times more energy to decelerate motion. Tibia is internally rotated. Now what's on top of that is the femur. So the femur internally rotates. The knee flexes, abducts, and is internally rotated. The femur goes into the acetabulum, the hip. So the femur is slight, because you, you were at heel strike, the hip is slightly flexed. Now the femur internally rotates. So you're internally rotated and lengthening the tissues of the glute to eccentrically load them. And as we get into mid stance, our, our weight typically shifts. So the hip goes over the foot. So now the hip is adducted. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff that's just happened there with just one step. Yep. But you've maximally loaded the glute in all three planes of motion by flexion, internal rotation, and adduction of the hip. Yep. If anything in that foot is limited in motion in those four components, ankle dorsiflexion, tibial internal rotation, calcaneal inversion, forefoot abduction, if any of those become limited in motion, there's going to be a suboptimal loading of the glute. So I, I sometimes say that the foot has to make a phone call to the glute to get turned on. Yeah. If there's a slight disconnection or static in the line because something isn't working, let's say you've got a rigid midfoot and the foot doesn't load very well, the glute's not going to get optimally loaded. Yeah. And then we see a myriad of issues that go on at the glute. We see a myriad of issues going on at possibly the, the back, the low back and the SI joint 
Yeah. And that's where we, we have to step back and say, okay, what's happening? Yeah. So when you do um, a gate analysis, do you do, like, let's once again imagine that we're working with somebody who's apparently healthy, you know, um, would you do just walking? Would you do jog, run? Would you do different <coughs> types of gait analysis or do you usually stick with, with a walk? Well, it, it depends on who I'm working on and what their goals are. Okay. Uh, everything emanates from the gait. So I want to see them walk first. And I'll start looking at the hips to see how the hips are moving in three planes of motion. And how I, how I learned this, I just became comfortable watching at the hips. Then I go down and see what's going on at the foot and ankle. Because if I see that there's motion going on at the hips and it's whatever normal is, it appears by eyeball to be normal, I should know that as the hip goes into adduction, it's going to internally rotate. What's going to do the leg is going to internally rotate it. It's going to create a reaction at the foot. But if I don't see hip adduction, if I see somebody that's walking that's very rigid and doesn't have the sway, I can extrapolate, well, that's going to have an impact and a limitation of what goes on at the foot. Now I kind of get an assessment or an idea, and I'll write down some thoughts. I'll look up then at the thoracic spine to see if there's rotation bilaterally in the thoracic spine. I'll look at them from an anterior-posterior view. So first, I'd rather have somebody walk away from me. I'd just learn to see and watch how the hips go into extension, adduction, rotation. Then I go down to the feet. Then I'm watching them to see how much thoracic rotation. As they walk away, I look at scapular motion to see their arm swing, then have them walk back to me. Yeah. Then I'll look at them from the side. Okay. So I can just see the symmetry and how much extension they have yeah. going on. Um, and that extension is not just through the hip. I want to see, do they have uh, a metatarsal dorsiflexion? Do yeah. they have good ankle dorsiflexion? Is their heel coming off early? Uh, are they extending through the hip? Do they rotate or are they getting thoracic extension in relation to the hip motion? Mm -hmm. Then I'll put them on a treatment table and I'll look at what's going on at the subtalar joint, the midfoot, the, the great toe, yeah. uh, ankle dorsiflexion. Then I'll check the hip in isolation in all three planes of motion, internal rotation, external rotation, adduction, flexion, extension, and then look at the thoracic spine in isolation. But then I, and by isolation, I'll have them be seated and have them rotate. Yeah. But then I also will have them stand up and see how much of that rotation they have in relation to seated. And if it's limited, where is the compensation coming from, if it's coming from the hips or not? Yeah. Um, and then I'll look at scapular motion and see how much motion is going on in the scapula before I look at shoulder joint. I'd rather look at shoulder girdle first before shoulder joint. Yeah. Then I come back to the front, and as they go into ab abduction of the shoulder, I want to see if the clavicle is going into abduction. Yeah. Many times I see a lot of impingement signs of the shoulder because the clavicle isn't abducting about two or three degrees. Yeah. Um, through the... Uh, <clears throat> fellowship that I've got through the Gray Institute, I also learned to use the a functional grid, a testing grid. Yep. So I'll do balance reach tests. Uh, that's what started me in all three planes of motion to see how the foot and the hip are working. But then I've extrapolated other movements from there. Yeah. And various just excursion tests, but not necessarily using the grid, but I just use the grid to look at symmetry of one side to the other. Once I 
have an idea of what that data is, and I can extrapolate where it's limited to motion, um, then I can look at where that limitation is, what strategies would I use to free it up, and then retest or just see how they move. And with that, I'm doing video analysis at the same time. I'm, yeah. I'm video, I video their, their gate, I'll video some of the various reach tests. Uh, the app that I use is called Spark Motion. Okay. An incredibly, incredibly powerful tool that is easy to use, but it's reproducible and it has tools in there that just allow us to look at pre and post. It allows split screen, slow yeah. motion scrubbing, and I highly recommend uh, checking out the Spark Motion app. Um, because if the client can sense, I didn't know I was limited here before, mm -hmm. and now you free that up and they say, I've never felt like this, or I didn't know this was so limited. And then you show them pre and post on video, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. And now we can create strategies to, uh, through movement, through some mobilization, through some uh, soft tissue work, or refer out to massage therapists or maybe a physio to do some soft tissue work. And now it becomes a synergistic and multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. And not just the trainer being an island unto themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, with that, most <coughs> trainers are afraid that if they send somebody out, they won't get them back. What they well. should be thinking is, okay, if I send somebody out, and let's say it's to a physio uh, or to a massage therapist, first of all, it's revenue. It's, it's a revenue source and a referral source to that healthcare professional. Yeah. If you refer out to, let's say, a physio or even a doc, let it be if it's a if it's an internist, an orthopod, if it's a podiatrist, a neurosurgeon, but you provide a rationale of why you're referring and what you see limited in motion, yeah. and have a and, and say I'm seeing, as an example, subtalar joint that's limited in motion that's creating X, Y, and Z and some back issues, and you tell a podiatrist that that he do a podiatric evaluation, or you tell an orthopod or a neurosurgeon that, what are they going to think about that trainer? That they're pretty good. That they're pretty good. Now yeah. I've got a patient that needs some exercise or that physio is discharging their patient but still tells the patient, you need some fitness, who are they going to refer to? Yeah, right back to the trainer. Back to that trainer. So the trainer shouldn't be thinking, I'm, I'm afraid to refer out because I may not get them back. Yeah. Look at it as you were a referral source and they see that you stand out from any other trainers that are in the region that's going to build your business. I've seen it for 39 years. Yeah. And Trainers need to think that way because our industry is part of healthcare. Yep. We're the continuum of healthcare. And at least in the United States, where uh, uh, insurance is regulating and limiting how many visits a patient can have, a good trainer, a good strength and conditioning coach can be the con additional uh, continuum from rehab and bridge the gap to fitness to activities of daily living to sports performance. Yeah. So many patients that I've seen and clients that I've seen that have come out of rehab, particularly at the higher level that, when I say higher level, that are either trying to get back to return to play yep. or get back to their, their job, they don't have the pain, they've got some motion, they've gained some strength, they are nowhere even close to being ready to go back to their job or go back to sports performance. Yeah. That's where the trainer comes into play. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it was interesting when you were talking about the, your, your gait analysis. It's it's interesting because when 
I first started, I was working at a few rehab clinics and watching gait analyses with quotation marks, all of it was looking at the ankle, right? So gait analysis was how, what's, what's going on at the foot and only the foot. So I love that you brought in that you actually look at the hips first, then you move down and then you move back up to that thoracic spine uh, because all of those play a role, right? So that thoracic spine with shoulder motion, right? As the left foot comes forward, the right arm comes forward, cross body, right? Transfer of forces, stability through the spine. You've got to have proper hip motion. Um, and you brought up, you know, uh, the metatarsal heads and movement, you know, in the first ray and, you know, the uh, subtalar joint, the big toe extension, all those kind of pieces um, that are, kind of like pivot points where if you don't hit a certain degree of great toe extension, so if you don't have great toe extension, you won't hit ankle dorsiflexion, you won't hit hip extension, right? And so you start seeing that people don't bring their legs behind them when they walk, right? Everything's in front. Exactly right. Um, and it's just interesting being able to piece all of that together and, and be able to see that. Well, I, I want to say I just got comfortable with the process that I use as far as starting at the hips, going down to the foot, and then up to the thoracic spine. Yeah. But whatever's comfortable and whatever process the trainer feels is comfortable for them, there's no right way to do this. Yeah. Just like the way I do things isn't the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there, there's other movement screens that are out there that do a good job. Yeah. I think we need to take pieces of, of all of this. The reason I... I'm comfortable with what I do is obviously I've been doing it for a while, but it's the foundation of movement is gait. Yeah. And no matter what screen you do, it has to come back to gait. I don't mind unweighting somebody and putting them on a, on a plinth or a, or a treatment table. But as we look at things in limited in motion, an isolated joint, okay, that tells me I kind of isolate that out. But if they're okay on the table, but when they're up and walking and I don't see the function as I and the motion as I do on the table that's telling me something's limited somewhere else it's creating abnormal movement and discomfort in that particular region that we're looking at yeah you know you asked a question earlier Adam about when we led into this do I look at people running well first everybody still goes through a gait and motion analysis and if I see if, if somebody comes in that is a runner and they're having iliotibial pain the tibial band pain is an example. Okay, first I need to see what's going on in slower movement, yeah. in gait, and go through exactly what I just described. Now let's get on the treadmill and I'll video, or let's go outside and I'll video again. Same view from anterior posterior view. I like to do lateral view. Um, if, if I see that there's a limitation, we'll free that up, see how they feel. But often then when we look at the sport that they want to get back to or the activity they want to get back to, and if it's running as an example, let's look at your running gait. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me how many people are very upright and they're stacked shoulders over hips, over knees, over ankle, over foot, yeah. and they complain that they have back pain or they're having uh, uh, hip issues. But if we correct their gait, 
and get them a little more propulsive and work on the extension phase, they start feeling better. Yeah. I, I just have somebody last week, two weeks ago, uh, she came in and was having a significant hip issue. Mm. Well, she had a very, very tight uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, posterior tibialis that was limiting her ability to evert, so her foot became very rigid and didn't unload very well. Mm. Once we freed that up and gave her some, mo some movement patterns just to get her glute stronger, um, to allow the foot and ankle to do what it's supposed to do, and she came back so that she was feeling better. She also had some soft tissue work done, so it was a referral to a massage therapist. Yeah. Then we looked at her running. Her running, she's very upright. Yeah. Very upright. Gave her some drills and get her into a bit of a forward lean from the ankle. Yeah. Got her into more of a midfoot striker rather than a rear foot striker. She's running without any problems. Now, I may have gotten lucky there, but it's a process that we just work them and move them along based upon what they were telling us of how they were moving and what we could glean from a, a gait and motion analysis. Yeah, and I find a lot of, a lot of times <laughs> trainers will do the assessments that they learn and they don't always know as you mentioned as we've talked about the why behind like what are you trying to pull from that specific assessment like do you know if you see you know in your gait analysis if you see that the person <coughs> over pronates do you know then what to look for to understand why that's happening Right, like I think that's so that's true. What you piece. said is so true. They'll do an assessment, which is good. I think it, I think an assessment needs to be done because if nothing else, it gives us a baseline. Yeah, and we're able to develop strategies or a roadmap for where we want to go. But so many of the assessments that are out there are looking at what's and not why's. Mm -hmm. They're looking at things in isolation. I've got a tight hip or you've got a deactivated glute med, okay, if I see somebody walking with the Trendelenburg sign, you don't have to tell me that, I see it. The yeah. question is, why? Yeah. And I believe that the strategies and approaches I've learned along the way tells us why. Yeah. You know, even there's systems out there at times that does video capture with digiti digitization. Yeah. And you see these neat looking bells and whistles and stick figures, okay. You're showing me a bunch of what's, but why is somebody moving that way? I've worked with a number of golfers, and I work with a lot of baseball players, and and uh, particularly those who have had elbow injuries. And their coaches, or their strength and conditioning coaches, show me video with digitization. That's really cool, but why are they moving that way? Yeah. You're showing me how they're moving, but why are they moving that way? Yeah. When you don't have an answer, that doesn't give me a whole bunch of information. Yeah. Let's do the evaluation. Hmm. If you want to keep your technology, do so. Let's look at before, do an evaluation, we'll do an intervention. Let's then use your technology again and see if we see a difference. Yeah. That's when it all can really blend together and yeah. we work synergistically that way. Yeah. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.